Giuguch and welcome back to the study of the Gospel of Jesus Christ according to the beloved physician Saint Luke. So here we are, finally, chapter two. It took us a long time to get through the first chapter. However, if everything goes the way it looks like it's going, God willing, we may get this chapter done in the first three or four sermons. Now, I don't know um, whether or not I've mentioned this already, but the plan for this series is that every two chapters, I'm going to pause the series and study through one of the minor prophets. So when we're done chapter two, we will look at Hosea and we will be going through the minor prophets uh, in the order that they appear in the Old Testament. Now, that means that when we finish Luke, we will still have to cover Malachi, and then we will move on to the book of Acts. Now, the book of Acts uh, has the same amount of chapters as Matthew's gospel. So, after every one of the, or after every chapter of the book of Acts, we will do a chapter of Matthew, so we will alternate. So, then when we're done the last chapter of Acts, we will have one chapter left to do of Matthew. Then we will do one of two things. Either we will go through Mark's gospel or we will go through John's writings. Now, if we go through John's writings, then we will be doing his gospel, his three epistles, um, and the book of Revelation straight through. Um, but we won't be doing any intercessions. So we won't be doing like other series in between, like we've been like, like I'm planning on doing with Luke and so on. It will just be John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Revelation, uh, in that order, just straight through. Or... Um, we will go through Mark's Gospel. Now, if we go through Mark's Gospel, then we will pause after every chapter and do 10 psalms, uh, because there are 16 sa- chapters of uh, Mark and 150 psalms. What that means is that we will actually finish the psalms first, so that when we finish the last 10 psalms, we'll have one chapter left to do of Mark. Unlike the rest of it where we will be finishing, like, for example, we, we will finish Luke before we finish the uh, Minor Prophets and we'll finish Acts before we finish Matthew. But it will still work quite nicely together. So I'm going to be doing both of those things. Uh, I'm just not sure about what order I'm going to be doing them in. I don't know which one I'm doing first. I will be doing one after the other. So I'll either be doing the John series and then Mark and Psalms or Mark and Psalms followed by the John series. I'm not too sure. We'll see uh, how it goes. But that's the plan for the future. Now it's time to focus in on today. And today we will be studying the second chapter of Luke's Gospel, verses 1 to 21. So that's enough chit-chat. Let's get into it. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 21. Remember, this is the English Standard Version, the ESV. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Uh, This was the first generation when Quirinus was the governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, the Judah, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the, uh, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to the firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord um, shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you, and you will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. And lying in a manger. 
and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly host of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased and when the angels went away from them into heaven the shepherds said to one another let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us and they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger and when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight, day, eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. We go to verses 1 and 2, and here we see the name of two prominent figures at the time, Caesar Augustus and Quirinus. By including these people in a manner, the manner that he does, Luke is doing two things. First of all, he shows that this is a historical narrative. The event we are about to hear um, about is a real event that really happened at a real point in time. If you don't know when it was, all you must do is look to see when the events in um this passage, or sorry, in verses 1 and 2, took place. As R.C. Sproul says, Luke doesn't begin with once upon a time. He begins with real events that can be verified. This wasn't made up by the writer. It was something that really happened, which can be linked to other verifiable events. The second thing this does is put emphasis on the coming king. Sure, these people are powerful, but they're little more than a, a marker here a tool which the author uses to help his readers know when the important things, the truly important things, were happening. By doing this, Luke reduces the significance of the people mentioned whilst elevating the true subject of the passage, Jesus Christ. In verse 3, we are given more context about what's going on. We see that everyone must return to their hometowns. Um, this is vital to the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, as I will explain later. Verses 4 and 5, we see Joseph going to his hometown, a place called Bethlehem. But he doesn't go alone. He brings Mary, his fiancée. He had no obligation to do this. She didn't have to go with Joseph. There was no rule saying that engaged couples must go together. And there's nothing in the text that says Mary was originally from there. But he took her anyway. Why? Well, I think there are two reasons. Reason number one is that Mary, as we will soon see, was close to giving birth. She was in the late stages of her pregnancy. While the trip certainly would have been very tough on her, Joseph was likely much more concerned about leaving her alone to have the baby when he wasn't by her side. I think this gives us a brief look into the character of Joseph. The child isn't really his. He has no true parental obligation to look after it, and yet he still cares for it. He still cares about the baby inside his fiancée's womb. He also cares deeply about Mary. So he brings Mary along with him to ensure that both her and the baby are looked after. The second reason why Joseph took Mary with him to Bethlehem was that it was necessary. Micah chapter 5 verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be 
ruler in Israel, his coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Joseph likely knew that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. So he found out about the census, or when he found out about the census, it only made sense for him to bring Mary with him. That way the prophecy in Micah could be fulfilled. In verses 6 and 7, we see that Jesus was in fact born in Bethlehem. But his birth was not some grandiose event. His birth in a stable, or he, he is born in a stable, because there wasn't space for them in the inn and was then placed in a manger. And here he was, the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, inside a manger in a stable because his family wasn't able to get into an inn. This humble start reflects the way Jesus lived his life. He was a humble man. He didn't seek fame or glory. He came from Nazareth, which was essentially the cavern of Judea. Uh, any Irish people listening will get that. He worked a common job and he even had a very common name, Yeshua. Even though in reality, he has a name above every name. Something which I find interesting about this verse is that it refers to Jesus as Mary's firstborn. Now, we know Jesus had siblings. The Bible tells us as much. If we go to Mark chapter 6, verse 3, we see it says, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters with us here? And they took offense at him. But there are some people, namely Catholics, who try desperately to pretend that Mary remained a virgin for the rest of her life. They claim that Jesus' brothers and sisters were Joseph's, or just Joseph's sons and daughters from a previous marriage. This passage presents two problems to that theory. Firstly, these older siblings are not present in any version of the Nativity wherever it appears in the Bible. They are not mentioned as having come on the journey, and we don't see their reaction to their new stepmother being both a virgin and pregnant. The reason they are omitted is because they weren't born yet. That's the real reason. But the Catholics claim that they were and that Mary never had any other children herself. The second problem comes from the fact that Jesus, as I said, is referred to as Mary's firstborn. First and only are not the same thing. I'll give you an example. When God created Earth's moon, we only have one of them, he was not creating Earth's first moon. He was creating its only moon. You cannot say that the moon in the sky is Earth's first moon. It's the only moon. Similarly, when there is a child with no siblings, they are called the only child, not the firstborn. If Jesus was an only child, then he, wouldn't, then he would be called an only child. But he wasn't called an only child. He was called the firstborn. If he was the first, then that means there were others. If you go to verse 8, we see that a few shepherds were watching over their flocks at night. Now, I think that similarly to the mention of the rulers in verses 1 and 2, these people are here to show the greatness of Christ. These shepherds watch over their flocks in the darkness in the same way that the good shepherd watches over his flock, even when they are in darkness. The good shepherd keeps his flock safe. We don't think it was a coincidence that it was shepherds. They could have, they appeared to the angels. They could have appeared to carpenters, to locksmiths. I don't know, politician, anybody. They could appear to anybody. They appeared to shepherds, and I think there's a reason for that. 
think it was to show in the same way that these shepherds watch over their flocks from darkness into light jesus watches over his flock from darkness bringing them into light now verses 9 through 12 uh, here we see that the shepherds were afraid of course there were angels had come down uh, it, people are always afraid when the angels appear to them but the angels calm them down and they tell them of the good news of the birth of the new king. They were clearly sent, uh, the angels that is, to send the shepherds to see Jesus as they tell the shepherds that they will know which baby is Jesus by the fact that he will be wrapped in a cloth, uh, in cloth and lying in a manger. Verses 13 and 14 we see the appearance of a multitude of angels who begin to sing the glory of the Lord. Now I think that sometimes we get this arrogant view of worship. Like we're doing God a favor by worshiping him. But just remember, when the angels sing, they always sing the glory of God. You know, the famous lines from Isaiah and Revelation, glory, glory, glory. That's the angels' song. They're always singing the glory of God. If the angels, who are so much greater than us, feel so compelled to worship and glorify God, then why shouldn't we? In the angel's song, we also see that there is to be peace on earth for those who God is pleased with. Now, this does not mean that we will never have trials. Rather, it shows that even though our trials, even through our trials, excuse me, um, we can have peace knowing that God is our shepherd. He is our sovereign king and lord. These trials, they may have been a surprise to us. They were not a surprise to him. He knew that they were coming. He may even have done it purposefully. Of course, he is sovereign over all. He is a way of getting us out of it. We may not like the way he gets us out of it. We may not like being in it. But we're in it because he puts us there. He will bring us out one way or another. Either through salvation or through death or whatever. He has a plan. We need to trust him. In verses 15, 16, 17, 18, 19 and 20, we see the shepherds decide to go and see the newborn child. When they get there... Um, they tell everyone what happened to them. Now, everyone is surprised um, and quite confused, except for Mary, who takes the information into her heart and thinks on it for a while. Well, now she's not unsurprised uh, or anything like that, but she's not as surprised as everybody else. Now, again, I think that this shows that um, Jesus' siblings weren't around at this point in time. We do see that there are other people present at the birth of Jesus, but none of them have any clue what's going on. If they were Joseph's children, they likely would have been informed of the situation and would not be so surprised at the news. Obviously, they would be a bit surprised when a bunch of random shepherds turned up and said that an angel had told them about their new brother, but they wouldn't have been as confused in the way that the verse tells us that those who were present at the birth were. Now, it's true that we aren't told what Joseph's reaction was either, and some may try to argue that in the same way that Joseph's reaction was omitted, perhaps Luke also omitted the reaction of Christ's siblings. However, at that point, you would be arguing for the omission of a detail concerning people that Luke never says were actually there. If they weren't there, then where were they? Later on in the Gospels, uh, we see that they were still close to Mary, while Jesus was in his 30s. They still hung around Mary in the uh, previous verse that I read a few minutes ago. So why weren't they, why wouldn't they be with Mary and Joseph now? These are the sorts of questions that arise when you pretend the Bible says something that it doesn't in order to defend a belief system which is entirely made up, that being the Catholic views of Mary. 
Speaking of Mary, we see that she doesn't quite understand everything yet. Like I said, she is not as confused as everybody else, but still doesn't quite get it all yet. And she has to take in all the information she can and process it. Now, she likely understands most of what's going on, um, but she does still need to think about it. Now, this shows Mary's humanity. It shows she was a real person. She wasn't some character invented to tell a story. She was a real person going through real events. She didn't have all the information that we do now. She had to think about these things. She had to ponder them. She didn't just know everything straight away. She was human. This humanization of Mary helps show that she is a real person going through real events. She was not made up by Luke or anyone else. Now the shepherds, having seen what they came to see, went away praising and glorifying God. They, like Mary, probably didn't know everything that was going on. In fact, their information was certainly a lot more limited. But they knew enough to glorify God. I think we need to act more like these shepherds sometimes. We can never know everything God has planned, but we know enough about who he is to worship and glorify him, even when we don't know what he's doing. It can be hard to worship and glorify God in our trials, but we must still do it. He is the same God in the hard times as he is in the good times or in the easy times. Finally, we finish off in verse 21, where we see that Jesus was circumcised and given his name, as the angel said would happen. Now, this circumcision gives us a, glam a glimpse into one of the purposes of Jesus' incarnation. Yes, he came to preach the truth. Yes, he came to die for sins. But he also came to live the perfect life in accordance with the law. Jesus didn't need to be circumcised because otherwise he wouldn't be able to be the Messiah or anything like that it wasn't something that like what well, if you're not circumcised then blah 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 jesus had to be circumcised because the law demanded it if jesus was to live the perfect life he had to follow the law and by his perfect obedience to the law not only did he free us from the wages of sin but he allowed us into the kingdom of heaven if jesus freed us from our, uh, freed us from our sins we'd be completely neutral but by living his perfect life he makes it so that we can actually enter into heaven now, for the application, we can get a fair bit from this passage. We see the importance of worshipping God even when we haven't got all of the information. Do you do this? Do you worship God and everything? The good, the bad, the dark, the light? We must worship and glorify God in all things. We see how God is faithful to keep his promises. He promises certain things about the Messiah in the Old Testament, and now he is fulfilling those promises. He promises the Messiah would come, and the Messiah came. He promises the Messiah would be born of a virgin, and the Messiah was born of a virgin. He promises the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, and the Messiah was born in Bethlehem. The Old Testament documents the promises of God, and the New Testament documents how those promises were kept. Do you trust God's promises? When he promises to save all his people, do you believe him? You should, because he never lies. We also see the danger of just making stuff up and pretending it is authoritative of his scripture. I think that if Mary were to see the way the Catholic Church sees her, she would be mortified. She would be disgusted. We must rely on God's word, not man's fantasies as our authority. Finally, we see the folly of pride. 
In chapter 1, Luke mentioned a notable ruler from the time. Here he mentions two more. They are not important to the story itself. Rather, they help people figure out when it happened. They, despite how they likely saw themselves, were almost entirely unimportant to the history of redemption. Now, God did use one of them to get Mary to Bethlehem. That is true, but that was pretty much it. None of those three people would ever have anywhere near the same impact on history as a child born out in a shed and laid in a manger. Do not try to exalt yourself. You will never be anything more or less than what God makes you. Rely on his sovereign control on your life, wherever it may take you, and glorify him at every step. Now, I don't know who's listening to this, but I do know that you are a sinner, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. You and I deserve death. We deserve hell. But God promises to free his people of their sin, of the punishment, of the wages. He promises to give them a way out. Christ died to pay for the sins of his people. He took my punishment on the cross so I wouldn't have to suffer it myself. Now, when my time comes and God sovereignly leads me into eternity, I know my sins are paid for. I know where I am going. Would you like to come with me to paradise when you die? It's simple. Recognize that you are a sinner. Repent of your sins and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is our only hope. Thanks for watching this. I hope you liked it and found it enjoyable. Most of all, I hope you found it edifying. Please be sure to join us next time as we continue the study of the wonderful word of our wonderful God. Thanks for watching. Goodbye. God bless. And Salam Hagas Garamahakut.